It's the Victorian Variety Show. When a pig's getting slaughtered, the noise that it makes is sweeter by far than your trills and your shakes. And the howling of cats in the backyard at night compared with your singing's a dream of delight. Your squalls and your bawls are such torture to hear. A man almost wishes he had not an ear. If someone would choke you and thus end their pain, hearty thanks from your poor distressed neighbors he'd gain. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at some aspect or other of life during the Victorian era that doesn't get as much attention as, perhaps, it should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. A lot of the topics that I cover might seem weird or unconventional at first, in part because weird and unconventional topics appeal to me. But I also like to highlight why it's important to learn about them and understand where they came from. Because often, when we look deep enough, we can find present day similarities, which, as you'll soon see, applies to the topic of today's episode. My name is Marissa, and if you're new here, welcome. But if you've been listening to my last few episodes, you may know that during the month of January, I took a bit of a break and did two mini-sodes that were each around 15 minutes long. But now that we're in February, I'm going back to somewhat longer, more in-depth episodes, and also go back to starting each episode off by reading a bit of text that is relevant in some way to the topic of the day's episode. And the short poem that I just read to you a minute or two ago appeared on a so-called Vinegar Valentine that I found online under the heading, in all caps, YOU ARE A NERVE DESTROYER. Above the poem is a caricature of a woman who appears to me to be at least middle-aged with a Marie Antoinette type hairstyle, maybe not as high as Marie Antoinette's, but kind of similar, I think, and her mouth open wide at an ugly angle. She's sitting at a piano, slapping hands that look a little too big in proportion to the rest of her body down on the keys. It's easy for me to picture someone sending this to a woman who's singing that they didn't particularly care for. But wow, it does seem like a pretty strong reaction, if you ask me. However, strong reactions like these were actually pretty common on Valentine's cards during the Victorian period. And since Valentine's Day is in a week and a half, I thought it would be a good time to look at some more examples of vinegar Valentines and try to get a better grasp of why they were popular and what inspired such animosity. But first, I'm going to give you an extremely brief overview of the history of Valentine's Day, which in the interest of full disclosure is not, has never been, and most likely will never be a holiday I'm particularly fond of, but that's a topic for an entirely different podcast. 
I always heard that the day was named after St. Valentine, which is easy enough, right? Actually, that's not correct. Because according to Charlotte Hilton Anderson, in What is Valentine's Day and Why Do We Celebrate It?, the Catholic Church actually sainted at least three Valentines, one of whom defied a decree of Emperor Claudius II that forbade young men from marrying, another of whom helped Christian prisoners escape from Roman jails, and still another who was a bishop from Terni. Anderson tells us that all three ultimately were beheaded. How's that for romantic? And according to some, on or around February 14th, albeit in different years, and each St. Valentine apparently has a group of fans claiming that the holiday is named after their guy. In addition, some have traced Valentine's Day back to Lupercalia, an ancient Roman festival held in mid-February that featured much merrymaking and fertility rites that sound to me like they came straight from the pen of the Marquis de Sade, such as men lashing women with sacrificed animal hides. It wasn't until the 14th century that the day became associated with romance. Thanks in part to a popular belief at the time in England and France, and immortalized in a poem by Geoffrey Chaucer called The Parliament of Fowls, that said that birds' mating season started on or around February 14th. Written Valentine cards started popping up in the 1400s, and in an article called Why Do We Give Valentine Cards, Alicia Zelazko suggests that these cards may have been inspired by a German tradition, which itself has a long history, dating back to ancient Egypt and China, in which friendship cards called, and I apologize in advance, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this, Freundschaftskarten. They were exchanged on birthdays, anniversaries, and other special days. The practice of exchanging Valentine cards became popular in England and North America in the 1700s, but they were usually made or written by hand. However, as was the case with Christmas during the 19th century, and particularly during the Victorian era, Valentine's Day became more commercialized. And thanks to both innovations in printing and postal reform, such as the Uniform Penny Post in England, which went into effect in January of 1840 and allowed anyone to mail something for just a penny, ready-made Valentine's Day cards could be mass-produced and easily sent to recipients. In Victorian-era, vinegar valentines could be mean and hostile. Crystal Ponty explains that two quote-unquote trailblazers of the Victorian valentine-making field were Jonathan King, a London stationer who adorned his creations with decorative lace paper, flowers, feathers, and tinsel, and in the U.S., Esther Howland, a Massachusetts printer and artist known as the, quote, mother of the Valentine, end quote, who realized early on that Valentine cards imported from Europe were often expensive and out of the price ranges of many Americans, and as a result, started making her own and eventually became the first American manufacturer of mass-produced Valentines. 
This is not to say that Victorians stopped making cards by hand once they were presented with the option of buying ready-made ones at their local stationers. A five-minute history article called Valentine's Day in the Victorian Era explains the Victorians with a talent for crafting, often used pieces of mirror, seashells, seeds, gold and silver foil appliques, and other materials, along with models like Be Mine and Constant and True in their creations. However, it does suggest that a large volume of Valentine's Day cards were being exchanged in the second half of the 19th century. So many so that postmen in many areas receive special allowances for food and other refreshments to get them through the busy two or three days before February 14th. Part of the reason these postmen were working so hard was because a significant percentage of the Valentines that they were lugging around in their mailbags were actually of the vinegar variety. So the marvels of mass production and cheap postage benefited both those who wished to seduce and those who wished to offend alike. Also known as comic valentines, vinegar valentines were mostly commercially produced and included a vivid caricature that was intended to represent the recipient and a short verse making fun of the recipient in some way. In When Valentines Were Vicious, A Brief History of the Vinegar Valentine, Maya Corrigan says that these cards were usually printed on one side of quote-unquote flimsy paper rather than on folded cardstock. So it seems like they were cheaper to make and probably to buy than their romantic counterparts. The vast majority of Vinegar Valentines were sent anonymously. And, to add insult to injury, via cash on delivery, which meant the recipient had to pay postage. In the rude, cruel, and insulting vinegar valentines of the Victorian era, Natalie Zarelli describes some vinegar valentines as sarcastic and playful, which suggests that the ultimate goal wasn't to offend. For example, a group of friends who like to joke around regularly might send them to each other, but ultimately it was all in good fun and they'd remain friends. Maybe you don't exchange insulting jokes with your close friends on a regular basis, but when I read this, I thought of one of those roasts that you see on Comedy Central when a group of comedians, many of whom have known each other and worked together for a long time and may consider each other friends, or at least they came up together in the comedy clubs. That's a world of its own. But anyway, the comedians will gather and celebrate the guest of honor by making jokes about them. So to me, it's conceivable. And even though caricatures generally depict their subjects in a cartoonish way, highlighting features in a way that's not necessarily flattering, again, the ultimate goal with a caricature is not always to offend. When I was growing up, my family sometimes took me to Broadway shows, and a few times we ate lunch at a restaurant in Manhattan's theater district called Sardi's, which was known partly for its caricatures of stars of stage and screen on the walls. 
it seemed to me when I would eat there that having a caricature drawn of you and hung up on the wall in Sardi's was like the ultimate proof that you'd made it on Broadway or in Hollywood, or in some cases, both. That said, the majority of Vinegar Valentines did tend to be vulgar and cruel. Some of them, such as the one that I read at the top of the show, targeted someone's character trait or physical appearance in a hateful way. For example, they might have been considered too fat or too thin, or they were old and wrinkled or bald or something like that. Other cards targeted more behavior, such as gossiping, being nosy or meddling too much in other people's business, being what was considered a slob or quote-unquote lazy or drinking too much or perhaps even not drinking at all. One type of vinegar valentine that seemed to have been popular was aimed at so-called ladies' men or men who were seen as too persistent and or not trustworthy. One such card that I saw quite a bit when I was doing research for this episode included an image of a red-eyed snake removing his top hat and this short verse beneath it. Quote, I'm not attracted by your glitter, for well I know how very bitter my life would be if I should take you for my spouse, a rattlesnake. Oh no, I'd not accept the ring, or evermore twould prove a sting. End quote. Another type of vinegar valentine targeted people based on their professions. You might have received a vinegar valentine from an anonymous customer if maybe the prices in your store were too high, or if you were a sales clerk known for snapping at customers. If you caught my episode last February, almost exactly one year ago, how do you like that, on Victorian era surgery, you probably know that even though Victorian surgeons were doing necessary work that physicians of the time generally didn't do, they were, to put it mildly, lax when it came to things like washing their hands and sanitizing their instruments between patients. Not to mention hacking limbs off unanesthetized patients in seconds in many cases. So, a surgeon might receive a card such as this one that I think was sent during the Civil War in the U.S. that featured a surgeon with a huge grinning skull carrying a saw in one hand and a bag with a meat cleaver in the other with a scared looking guy who looks like he's getting down on his knees to say a prayer behind him. Accompanied by a short poem like this one called To the Surgeon. Quote, Ho, ho, old sawbones, here you come. Yes, when the rebels whack us, you were always ready with your traps to mangle, saw, and hack us, end quote. It's also important to note that even though Vinegar Valentines targeted men as well as women, when women were targeted, it was often for not engaging in quote-unquote ladylike behaviors. Women might receive them if they didn't marry and were thus considered to be quote-unquote old maids, or if they frowned too much or didn't smile enough. 
So you might say sending a woman who didn't smile a vinegar valentine was pretty much the 19th century equivalent of accusing a woman of having what is commonly referred to today as quote unquote resting bitch face. And a woman who was known for fighting for the right to vote could probably expect to receive her share of vinegar valentines which often depicted suffragettes as ugly or abusive and or destined to remain single for the rest of their miserable lives. Such as one I found that shows a prim, bespectacled woman appearing to push a heart clad in a pair of men's overalls, quote, back to the background, end quote, with her upraised fist. The accompanying verse reads, quote, be careful, men of the advocate of woman's rights in the single state. If you marry one, your troubles begun. You'll count for less than half your weight, end quote. Zarelli cites a scholar named Kenneth Flory, who has argued that the context of many of these cards suggests that, in the eyes of many, believing that women should have the right to vote was seen during this time as, quote, an inherent part of one's distorted personality, end quote. Thankfully, Vinegar Valentines also existed for pro-suffrage individuals who maybe wished to troll those with anti-suffragist sentiments. But according to Zarelli, the negative imagery that came to be associated with suffragettes led some women to distance themselves from women's rights and send their lovers cards in which they promised to cook for them and essentially be good little housewives. So I think you can see that most 19th century vinegar valentines were targeted toward those who were, often wrongly in my opinion, considered to have some type of quote unquote moral failing. According to historian Annabella Pollen, who is cited in Ponty's article, quote, perhaps it was hoped in some cases that they would prompt a change in behavior. But in many cases, their aim was simply to chide or even to wound, end quote. To make matters worse, Corrigan notes that a number of vinegar valentines included phrases such as people say and everyone knows which suggested that the sender was speaking on behalf of a larger group. So it's easy for me to imagine the recipient of one of these cards feeling like a social outcast. A few cards even suggested that their recipients should commit suicide. Again, I think that the one that I read at the top of this show kind of indicates this. And sadly, Corrigan mentions an 1847 case in which a woman overdosed on laudanum after she'd received a vinegar valentine from a man she believed was interested in her. Vinegar valentines were also known to inspire fistfights, lawsuits, and even attempted murder, such as one case from the 1880s in which a man shot his estranged wife after she sent him a nasty valentine. As a result, a number of postmasters ended up confiscating these cards rather than delivering them. So even though it sometimes seems like vinegar valentines were practically flying off the shelves, Corrigan says that in the mid-19th century, up to half of all valentines mailed in the U.S. were of the vinegar variety. 
we really don't know how many ultimately reach their targets. And even though it seems like a number of card manufacturers were more than happy to offer their clientele a wide variety of insulting Valentines, because hey, it was another source of revenue. Ponty explains that some blamed manufacturers for valuing profit over decency. It also seems likely that most cards that did reach their destinations were ultimately thrown into the trash or burned by their recipients. Although I found what I think is a lot of examples of vinegar valentines online, Pollen, the historian cited by Ponty, points out that many of these were never sent and were found in stationers and printers' collections. As a result, even though Zarelli says that vinegar valentines could still be found here and there as recently as the 1970s, they largely fell out of favor in the early 20th century and were replaced by the easily customizable poison pen letter. I'll admit that when I first found out about vinegar valentines, I was kind of excited, you know, not being fond of Valentine's Day and all. But now that I know more about them, my feelings on them are definitely complicated. I do think some recipients might have asked for it, such as anti-suffragists and ladies' men, but the majority of them strike me as really mean-spirited. And even though at most a handful of people probably saw each vinegar valentine, I do see some parallels between the practice of sending cards that sound like they were written by the Victorian era's version of Triumph the Insult comic dog and cyberbullying. I've heard it said that in the online world, because people can hide behind avatars and made-up names on social media, they feel free to say nasty things online that they probably wouldn't have the guts to tell someone face-to-face. And I think the same was true of quite a few people who sent vinegar valentines anonymously. Also, thinking of how suffragettes were frequently targeted, it's not a stretch to me to imagine others with views that were considered quote-unquote progressive back then, such as abolitionists maybe, as well as disabled people also receiving cards like this. And if you look at comments that a certain former U.S. president said about, well, just about everyone who criticized him while he was in office, not to mention racist and sexist comments being made by sitting Congress people, you can see that many of the sentiments expressed in Vinegar Valentine's certainly haven't gone away. So even though this topic became somewhat uncomfortable for me the longer that I spent researching it, I think it's a good example of how, since the Victorian period, the instruments might have changed, but sadly, the song remains the same. But now, it's time for you to tell me what you think, as long as you don't send me a vinegar valentine, because that would really hurt my feelings. Just kidding. No, not really. But anyway, email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvarie1. And if you'd like to support this show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. 
you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or make a one-time donation on my Linktree page or if you're listening to this show on the Good Pods app. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this show and for all of your support. And if you're a fan of Valentine's Day, I hope you have a good one and that this episode didn't spoil your enjoyment of it. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but I'm going to end this one by balancing out some of the negativity of the Valentines I used as examples. It was difficult for me to find a verse that I liked. Some of the more, you might say, positive vintage Valentines that I saw had poems and imagery that were a little too sweet, and on some of them, the print was simply too small for me to read. The one that I finally chose shows a cherubic-looking figure wrapped in a red bow and wearing a fedora-like hat, my favorite kind of hat, sitting beside a bag of hearts and a pistol. He's also got a mask over his eyes, kind of like the Lone Ranger, and his eyes are open wide and kind of creeped me out. So I thought it would be just right for this show. Danny Cutie I am named, for my deeds I'm widely famed. Every night and every day, trusting hearts become my prey, my valentine. <laughs>